like 45 year olds <laughs> stuff big toller weights a big one as well and yeah um you know stiffer four feet in shoes and, and now we've got the in performance categories of shoes doing the same thing so yeah, it's it's interesting, and I think, and I know you you and Tom DeCanto did an awesome podcast um, on the inside running, like really recently, like the August edition, talking about a lot of the research, which was awesome, and then all the the shoe geeks. Episodes. Have they published that? Have they published that one? Yeah, we'll listen that's to it on good. the way yeah. home. Oh, nice, yeah. that's good. Yeah, so, so <laughs> all all for nine for resource that, yeah. that podcast yeah yeah it's good truly really good i mean like you were saying with with the shoes and especially with big toe away sometimes you know having someone in a carbon plated shoe with big toe away, it, it nearly brings them from like a 10 to a zero it's incredible <laughs> it's, it's amazing isn't it look and it makes us look really good so um <laughs> and we've got those yeah. tools now we didn't have we didn't have them historically right so um I know Hoke have been around since 2009, but they were really hard to find here in retail back in that day, whereas now they're so high up the food chain in yeah. terms of accessibility. But like you said, <laughs> got, the got my carbon twos on right now. Oh, nice. I haven't got into them yet as well. Actually, I have to, I, in terms of like, you know, talking about specificity of shoes, I'll, I'll give Maybe this group right. a shout out, but um, this is, I actually haven't never worn the Ultra before. So this is the oh. Ultra Torrance. Ultra run what? their philosophy of basically having an anatomical fit. Yes. Which what means- so it's called Ultra. Yeah, so Ultra. they're not quite as popular here, bigger in the US, but the anatomical fit is um is a luxury, right? Like I forget mm. the how much um you know space in the forefoot really is a luxury in 2022. Although mm. like the the I just got the cloud monsters, the ons, mm. and they have such a big toe, wide toe box as well. I feel like they're too big almost, like they feel so spacious. They are, yeah. That has a huge volume in that shoe. So, mm. um, and look, some of the anatomical fits are really good. I know my wife's got quite a broad foot, right? And she saw the ultras in shop maybe, I don't know, maybe two years ago. And she put them on and goes, oh, this feels fantastic. Your feet can just play out, right? But she's looked at them and because anatomically, we don't think of this as a, like a really pretty shoe because, you know, pointed shoes are probably mm. designed to make us, that's what we perceive as a nice, you know, clean, um, good looking shoe. She looked at it. She goes, "But I'm not quite ready for it yet." So she went into a <laughs> she went into a pair of Clifton's that were like you know D width, so a right. bit wider anyway. So, but she's you know you can get the torrent in complete black, and she she put it on her foot. The only thing I find is um the reason I'm wearing them they're useful is I I'm, I pitch all my shoes. I have a history of Achilles and calf. I'm probably 16 millimeter pitch on average for every shoe wow. I wear minimum. Yeah. So uh, Tom's worse. Tom's probably higher, I reckon, and he's had the same issue. So uh, it's like a methadone clinic. I'm trying to slowly work. <laughs> and this is zero. Pitch. Off the pitch. That's it. So uh, I've got a That's pair funny. of running ones with six seal, but I'll, I'm walking yeah. in them at work and things like that. So I'm hopefully that has a bit of a you know transfer effect and I can sort of oh, get God. myself out of um, really high pitch shoes. So. I know I'm um, Andy Bryant. I think he listens to this podcast as well. He's going to be loving this. He loves the well, barefoot. Otherwise, he does, and he does. He advocates it as well. And he, I remember seeing a post historically he mentioned about you know sometimes getting people into them is meeting them halfway. You can offload mm. the forefoot really well with these the geometry in the shoe, and putting a small mm. pitch in temporarily is a good starting point to get into these shoes. And look, if you don't need it, fantastic. But a lot of people have come from ten mils. Sometimes putting a six beneath the um the sock line is not a bad sort of halfway point. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna ask a highlight of that one can you see yeah. ask this one. Hey. Oh, i want to ask this one because we're starting kelly and i are both doing queenstown marathon and nice. we we live near a big hill yeah. and i've seen every runner that i follow post about the benefit of hills making you a stronger runner but mm -hmm. i just don't like doing them i would like to get <laughs> the benefit without doing them but one of the questions we wanted to ask is and from your like coaching experience where do you see hills into running programs and if that changes obviously with distances and athletes and things like that 
Look, keep in mind that generally the biggest association to you doing really well in that marathon is just running more. That's the first mm. thing we need to know. So, um, and the hills are specific, but I, I, I have my opinion on them. And obviously I have nice anecdotes of people who don't use them as well. So we do a lot of long running through the hills. I am of the belief that the impact loads are a little bit lower when you start climbing a lot in our long runs. So we can normally collect more time with a slightly mm. higher heart rate. Um, for a bit less stress in terms of stress on maybe impact related stress. But in saying that stress does change. So when you climb a hill, there might be more tension off your tissue that originate from different areas. Right. So we just need to make sure that that's taken into consideration as well. But I'm I'm off off the belief that when you're climbing hills and you start descending them, you know, you get a small accumulation of the lactate, for example, you start changing your energy systems from utilizing, you know, fats as a fuel substrate to more uh, carbohydrate you probably develop a little bit of lactate clearance capacity by doing it. While it's not, you know, while it's association and not cause, a lot of our great runners, you know, the Monaghetti's and, and lead troops and, um, and De Castellas are famous for running a lot of their long runs through the hills. And I guess the, the key point is, is that you normally collect a few more heartbeats or percentage of heartbeats for probably globally a bit less stress, I would say, in terms of tissue mm-hmm that's relative to depending on what tissue it is and insertional Achilles tendon might disagree with you, so to speak. So, <laughs> um, but I did, well, I, I lectured at a, a conference recently and um, the coach of Jess Trengrove, Adam Diddick, he um, Jess had a phenomenal run at Birmingham and the mm. back end of Birmingham was quite hilly. And um, I asked him the question in relation to, um, cause I know they don't do a lot of hills and I felt responsible once Jess came out for a long run through the hills with our group. And she developed, she was, she was obviously training really hard, but she ended up with a bit of a, a stress for injury of a femur. And I felt really bad because she hasn't done any heels. And I was like, oh, maybe I've just, you know, brought her out to the group, picked the hospital, <laughs> Come on. And, and broken her, right? But long story short, they don't do a lot of it, but they do a lot of lactate clearance specific work, which means they're running a bit above the threshold or close to the threshold. And then they're clearing it by running just a little bit below it as well. And we sort of discussed this once on Facebook and, in relation to them getting the capacity to be able to climb hills by accumulating a bit of lactic, whether there's a mechanical effect to climbing up hills that's advantageous, I do believe there is a, a bit of that. Like I've got a young lad who I coach who climbs really, really well, long levers, runs over the ground beautifully. But you normally like, unlike cycling where watts per kilo is really important so the lighter guys can push higher relative power, climb better. There's probably a mechanical aspect to climbing the hills, you know, posture, covering the ground. I mean, every step you take going up a hill, the, the ground's getting closer to you a little bit because it's you climbing up a hill. So teaching you to run over the ground probably is, is a subtle mechanical movement that can improve your economy up the hills. Mm-hmm. But I guess there is data similar to strength training, improving your running economy globally. People incorporating short hill sprints and moderate hill sprints seems to be associated to improving your running economy as well. Whether it's better than other things like strength training or whether it's a replacement, Running up a hill, you're normally running at a high relative effort with a lower absolute pace. So it's relative. It's almost like it's almost like resistance training to some extent um, on a low grade scale. And you'd argue over Eastern African countries, they do a lot of climbing over the rolling hills and things like that. Whether the the effect is partially mechanical or partially physiological, I you don't like climbing, but I love it. Um, so, but I'll measure it by effort. So I'll be happy to see five minutes on the clock at a 6% incline, for example, um, knowing that the heart rate for that particular duration of time is probably giving me a little bit more physiology back. So uh, I've found that a nice way of getting back from say 
um, some particular types of stress injuries that I may have had historically as well, just to slow the pace down, but collect a bit more physiology. Um, mm, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah, that's a good that's a good answer. Mm. And then do you do you tend to program them into, as you said, like into your long runs, or do you have sessions that are heel specific? Yeah, or depending on what you're training for. I guess. The cross country on the weekend at Oak Bank uh, was for our national cross country demanded people to be climbing really hills, but it looks like the mud was the biggest disadvantage <laughs> there for um yeah. for people. But that was really hard to try and train. You know, think going to chase hills is hard. Going to chase mud, you can't get a group really <laughs> yeah. adhere to that. But we do normally put strength mm. work in, which essentially um, is our hill work. Uh, but we won't do it super regularly. So our longer runs will tend to will collect most of the hills in that. The week that we do a longer run through the hills, we might not do as much hill work that week in terms of a program. Um, and a week that we do a lot of climbing on maybe a Friday or Saturday workout, we we, we might keep the long run a bit flatter that week as well. So we don't want to overload those systems. But uh, for variety, it makes sense to be able to do it. Um, and I still think there is probably an e economical benefit to climbing hills if your race is going to incorporate some hills as well. Mm. Yeah, cool. Um, you mentioned the the crossover between strength training and running what, what where do you sit with incorporating strength programming into your running programs yes it's, it's, i'm mixed about this and, and I, you only need to jump on twitter to talk, look at things like you know the effect of how much load goes through a calf for example when you're running for example and, <laughs> which is what you know sometimes you see statistics between five up to 11 times of body weight going through a calf and, well i can't calf raise 11 times of body weight what's the what's the transfer effect so mm. um it isn't the best transfer effect is that i just run to make sure i get that <laughs> so <laughs> um i mean strength training still is associated to improving running economy so performance attribute so putting that and i think as the distance gets maybe shorter um in terms of middle distance work maybe the effect is probably a bit higher in that cohort compared mm -hmm. to long distance runners. But I don't think it's more important than running more, but I guess the whole idea of strength training is maybe if you add that into your routine, it gives you the capacity in the future to be able to handle more running. And that's mm -hmm. what needs to be looked at, but it needs to be looked at compared to other variables that people might replace strength training with, which would be say one more running two, mm -hmm. maybe running a higher duration of your week up hills, for example, and seeing what the econ economy difference is between the two. I mean, there's there's small discussions and other things you get from strength training that, you know, that you don't get from running. And the big ones are things might be, you know, bone density development and, um, you know, tissue stiffness, et cetera, as well by a closed setting activities in the gym. So one of our runners here runs about 13 to 1400 meters per week, 300 Ks a week. And then the follow the next year he'll go to the NCAA system where he'll be in Chicago, which is flat, a cement prison. <laughs> but he'll have to replace a lot of the strength he gets in in the hills with probably more likely a gym setting. Mm. And um, so look, he won't get the economy from the hills. Um, and look, East Africa, I don't think they do as much strength training. I think they definitely do a little bit of it, but I don't think they definitely focus on it like they, what Western runners would do. And they definitely probably don't consider it as much of a, a huge maybe injury resistance type protocol either, which is interesting. I think most things they do in those, those countries tend to be built on trying to, you know, make money and get your way out by, by running fast, right? So I think, you know, it plays a role um, and maybe we don't have jobs and lifestyles that demand a lot of strength throughout the day. So it gives us a good supplement for 
general strength for life as well. I know having a daughter that's two years of age and getting down on the floor for like an hour with her and then getting up, I'm like, oh, that that was really easy. It shouldn't be hard at 36 or 37, <laughs> but it is a bit harder. So for me, there's probably more merit to it. And we know as you get older, perhaps reducing a bit of duration of running and replacing strength training might create more sustainability. Mm. But in a younger cohort, maybe it's just getting into the habit of doing it for the future. But I'm, I'm not convinced that it's it's more of a variable um, for improving your performance than more running would do. But maybe that's built on your injury history as well. And it's mm-hmm. also built on maybe your makeup, um, meaning if you want someone to get a bit stiffer when they're running, they're losing a bit of performance from that. Maybe closing down the drills and doing them in the gym setting is a good starting point because just telling someone to run mechanically different is sometimes not achievable, right? So yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, on that note, um, running technique. What what are your thoughts on on intervening on someone's running technique uh, in and in an asymptomatic group? Yeah, I, I think it's a tricky one, isn't it? So, it, it, in relation to injury, like if someone's doing longer distance running, for example, there's usually no need to intervene with any sort of like global running mechanics. Is there? Um, but as someone starts to improve running, like if you watch. 100 meter sprint final you know everyone's got like almost 90 degree knees their postures are good they're running over the ground they hit the ground hard then you watch a marathon and there's such a variation of how people get to the finish line mechanically mm-hmm. because that that event's so metabolically demanding your body picks or your central nervous system will select what is most economical oxygen wise to get you to the finish line if that's going really well you don't want to interfere with that too much do you but of course, as the event becomes, you know, shorter or involves a kick finish, for example, and you're fit enough to go there, but you don't have a mechanical advantage, sometimes changing the way that you move for those particular parts of the sport are really important. They might increase risk of injury as opposed to decrease risk of injury. The ability to apply more force, for example, means that if you can do that, perhaps maybe you do it a bit more often than training when you shouldn't and you might injure yourself. So, <laughs> um, so in terms of injury risk, the, the only need I would see would be if someone is continually getting particular pathologies related to their gait or you hypothesize is their gait issue. And you don't need to look any further than Christian Barton, um, who looked mm. at sort of patellofemoral pain in relation to maybe that sort of breaking loads or Chris Napier's work on breaking loads and sort of associating that with anterior shin load or anterior knee load, giving that gait a bit of a tweak temporarily to keep someone running to offload that particular joint. There's merit in that, isn't there? But that's a symptomatic mm. population, not an asymptomatic population. Mm. So I guess when you see someone run and you might think, oh, that doesn't look right. Well, then you change something and you cause a problem. We think, well, yeah, you've intervened when you're not meant mm. to. So, yeah, we were just, we were discussing um, like a, a patient of mine and I've seen her a couple of times um, at Park Run and like she's so lovely. And we were just discussing, like she just asked me the question, um, you know, do I need to change my gait? Because she'd mm. had people constantly come up to her and say, oh, mm. you need to change your knee position, you need to change that. And I was like, I just yep. don't think like everything's okay. I don't think there's any merit in changing and at the level that you're running at. Like she's not, yep. you know, going to represent Australia in the Commonwealth Games. Um, but yeah, it sounds, would you agree it's- something similar? Yeah, I think so. I think those patients that are super motivated, though, who have a bit more time up their sleeve, you can always consider like, I mean, I think it was a, I can't think of where he's from. He might be Canadian coach, Vern Gambetta. And he talks about the use of the typical ancillary running drills, like ABC running drills, Mm. and how the effects of, say, maybe doing high knees and heel flicks in these particular drills, which they they originated in Poland because, you know, they were the coach in Poland because they, they couldn't run outdoors during the winter, right? So they had to try and, you know, compress running down to these particular types of drills and do them in repetition to get better at, um you know, at the sport. It's almost military-like. 
Hmm. And and you do these drills often enough, maybe there's an ancillary effect to them where, you know, the, the posture position becomes a bit easier when you're doing more continuous running or even interval-based running. Um, it's definitely more sustainable and shorter workouts and sessions, you know, doing, say, if you've got, you know, 10 by 200, you might be able to hold onto some of these cues and attributes for that period of 30 to 60 seconds. Going for an hour might not be quite, you know, as sustainable. But perhaps those that cohort of people who want to improve maybe the mechanical efficiency on how they move. So sort of like running faster for absolute periods of time could add some more running drills or do other things that, you know, high performers do like strides or heel sprints for short mm. durations. And this physiology or even the mechanical aspects of that, there might be a small ancillary effect to it, meaning that you might start to take a bit of those attributes and fall over to some of your fast workouts, even if it's just the finish off them or the finish up a race so, you know, there might, there might be benefit to adding those sorts of things into that cohort rather than just saying we're going to increase your cadence rate, make you stand taller, run over the mm. ground, hit beneath your foot, which are all these drills that for a short period of time are very metabolically costly and sometimes you lose adherence as well. Yeah, I've never heard it answered like that. That I like it. Yeah, that's great. I think that's good because it's it's giving them something to work on so they feel like they're making progress on their running technique because a yep. lot of runners are, are keen to do that but without doing it in a way that is as you said metabolically demanding and mm-hmm. and making them have to constantly think about you know am i right running on either side of a line or am i lifting my knees high enough or all of those cues absolutely that you mentioned. yeah yeah absolutely yeah. What what would you say? And this is more. This question is more targeted towards the clinicians listening and mm. people that that struggle to return people to running. And I'm yep. assuming. And this question is kind of based around if you don't actually do any running yourself. So, yep. Yep. are there any easy ways that you might suggest? I mean, we've talked before about, and you mentioned mm-hmm. just before using like frequency, volume, and intensity. Yep and building that up. But but what would you suggest for the person that's probably not as knowledgeable and doesn't run as much themselves? Look, if if the person's trying to get better at the running or use it for, uh, say, health span, so get better at health, um, which should be most people, right? Normally, we're looking at high frequencies of activity. So more more often, you know, three to four frequencies per week. And we know that seems to be a bit of a, there was a paper by, oh, I want to know this one, but it was like if people that ran between 20 to 40 Ks per week were less injured than those who ran less than 20, but mm. slightly more I than know the one you're talking yeah. about. Oh. Um, and then those who ran like two or three times a week were less likely to get injured than say those who ran less than two or those who mm. ran more than four. So obviously the sweet spot, right? Yeah. So getting people to try and collect more frequencies first is where I'd normally start. And then I think if it's performance-based, well, uh, technically the high association of performance is, is distance or duration more than the intensity. So we, we get the frequencies out first. We usually add the duration second. And then when we find a happy medium for that and they need to uh, collect a little bit more physiology, well, then there's time to add the intensity in from there. But it doesn't mean if someone's coming back from a particular, say, a tendon injury, for example, it doesn't mean you can't add short doses of, say, tendon preparation, which might be strides and drills. It just might be titrated in really small early on. And then, you know, then the workouts can come later on. So you're sort of trying to get someone back fit first and then alongside of it, add a small characteristic in that is preparing that particular tissue that you're returning to get back to injury. If someone has no injury at all, well, then, yeah, I think more frequencies first, more duration second, and mm-hmm. then you add the intensity when you truly require and then try and make it enjoyable for them so it's sustainable so you create the variety throughout the week. So one might be duration bias, one might be intensity bias, and one might be like, do what you feel that particular day, but make sure it's just a bit easier. Yeah. And then having the, the right metrics in place. Yep. Yeah. Mm. That's great. What um now, 
impossible to answer this question. And we we always talk about how common running injuries are. Like, you know, some yep. studies are like 79%, you know, over a period of six months. Incredibly yep. common. Undoubtedly, most runners will experience one in their life. What, yep. what tips and things do you give to your athletes and patients and things for them to think about? Not to say do this and you won't get injured, but more just yeah, a yeah. concept to think about. Look, I, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but I think the key is is you work out one why you're doing it. And most of our patients still come through the door for to meet the physical activity guidelines. Running always comes across as this particular activity that's easy to get banged for your buck. Mm. Um, and often that means is people make particular errors by going out and doing the same thing three times a week, same intensity, same route, same duration. And look, there's a lot of monotony in that training as well. And, you know, Carl Foster's work historically showed when you build you create high monotony in your training, the risk of injury or illness might be a bit higher as well. And that's back in the 80s. So I'd argue that was the first true load management strategy that was probably discussed back then. And what we see with really sustainable athletes is that they spend a lot of time at the low intensity. Unfortunately for a lot of the population, that is going for a walk. Um, that mm. is hiking up hills and you are collecting, you know, 1.8 millimole or lactate by walking up a hill or even walking on the flat. If you go out there for an hour doing that, that's good physiology and it's good adaptation. And look, I think when people re- return to running or get running schedules early built on, you're working where, they, where they're currently at. Not everyone can do a lactate test. We aren't all the Ingebrigtsons here. We just can't give everyone a lactate <laughs> test upstairs. But look, you can get close to it. You can, um, mm-hmm. you can, you can I often find that, you know, with junior runners, I use heart rate as a nice guide for them with a strap to see if they are working hard on their easy days. But often people go out the door and they think if they're not running, um, and I use the same example, like if I, you know, run 15 minutes for 5K, um, three-minute K pace, but I'm jogging at about 445s or 430s, so it's 90 seconds slower. If I have a patient come through that can run about 20 minutes for 5K, but they're jogging at four-minute 30K pace, they're working relatively quite hard, but they might not perceive that they'll be in this, what I call this sweet spot of training, you know, that sort of 80 to 90% heart rate, we can do it for 30 to 60 minutes it feels not too easy, not too hard. And people chase that monotony. But often you realize that when, you, when you're training a lot less intensity, say maybe 10, 20% less, you're getting a lot of physiology from it, but you're just not getting quite the same physiology. But people need to put value into that. You know, the ability to, to utilize fats as a fuel substrate means you need to be you need to be working at lower intensities and, um, you know, breathing out less carbon dioxide as a, you know, and so you're building less lactate. You get good at low intensity by exposing yourself to low intensity. You get good at high intensity by exposing yourself to high intensity. When we look at all these studies comparing high and low intensity, that's six weeks. Of course, someone gets better if they run harder for six weeks. <laughs> you take someone who wants to do this as a lifespan or health span thing for 10 years, the only way that makes it sustainable is we look at people that do that for a living. And our endurance athletes who do it for a living, you know, 80, 90% of their dose at the low intensity. And that's an, arguably one of the most important points for sustainability. But they, mm. they, become, they become so efficient at that low intensity work is that the pace that they can run at to utilize fat still can sometimes be four minute K pace for an Olympic marathon runner, but they're still below one millimole lactate. Mm. So look for them. That's a good answer. That's yeah. Really pumped up. So, so trying to get people to, um, to, to, to value the intensity continuum is a really important part to getting people running more often and reducing risk of not just injury, but we're also looking at overtraining syndrome as well. Mm. You know, people who sort of cook yeah. themselves a bit from working too hard. And look, intensity work is um, is fun until yeah. it's not, you know. Um, so it's, you know, if you hit a plateau and you're working really hard, well, the thing is normally to try and drop the intensity and add more time, right? 
And, uh, and eventually, if someone ne- someone never really gets their time, we want to get to 100 miles a week of running this magic sweet spot, which, you know, they sort of like this fairy land which you get to. But if you can get there, you normally have to get there quite slowly and you normally mm. have to do it with lots of easier work. So mm. um, running is easy. You know, you run 100 miles a week, that might be 12, 12 hours. <laughs> cycling, <laughs> cycling, they're doing 25 hours a week, 30 yeah. hours a week, right? So, um, so these people are really efficient. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. but unfortunately time-wise it's it's a job right so <laughs> I love that you've said that though that's something that I'm constantly preaching is just building up your running sustainably particularly with those patients that just love running so much and they want to get back as quickly as they can but they also want to be running for as long as they can so it's, con- it's constantly that conversation of look let's just build you up sustainably you know the the best way to get your running as good as you can is to be able to run for as long as you can without getting injured and without be- there being any hiccups along the way so so let's just Absolutely. do it slowly and, and you know, mm. try and spin out and have a little look at this big picture of, of how many more years you want to be running for. Um, and that's definitely something that I've learned myself that, 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 that those easy runs are, are so, so valuable and yep. it's completely transformed my running and my injury status Absolutely. as well. So, yeah, I, I really like that answer. And I mean, how you, how you measure the intensity to give them the tools is becomes an interest, interesting point as well. Like, I mean, we have, I guess, three major metrics we use in running. And one is your, your rate of perceived exertion. So the Borg scale from six to 20, that was meant to predict like a linear increase. So like six would six out of 20 would be 60 beats a minute and 20 would be 200 beats a minute. Unfortunately, effort's not really linear, is it? So mm-hmm. um, so the CR 1 to 10 scale became more popularized. And so your effort from 1 to 4 was about the low intensity and 5 to 7 was this moderate intensity. And I guarantee you go to the clinic next week and you ask for RPEs between the runs that they do three times a week. It's always between 5 and 8. So it's yeah. intensity. <laughs> no one ever goes 9 or 10 because it's really hard. And yeah. no one goes 1 to 4 because I think they're not getting any, anything out of it. Mm-hmm. When you go to the elite cohort and it looks like they're spending a lot of time in the 1 to 4, Mm-hmm. And how they distribute their time in the threshold zone um, between five and seven compared to say eight plus is probably season dependent. So in the winter, they're building up more duration in the threshold. And in the summer, they spend more time in the high intensity. And I got a nice opportunity to look at one of my athletes data last year. He broke the 5k junior under 18 record here. And like he was my first athlete I coached starting at 13. And I thought, well, I need to try and develop the habits in him that the best have in the world, right? Which is usually lots of volume of running but volume is relative, right? So, you know, that was 20 Ks a week back then. And now he's up to close to a hundred, but most of it was at the low intensity, which we would on easy days, we'd prescribe by effort. So to say it's easy, full stop on threshold workouts, which was sort of like a sweet spot where we sort of had measured by in the lab when he got to about 16, we sort of knew that heart rate was a good guide because in the summer here in Adelaide, it's really hot. So you can, you know, your pace drops a lot compared to the same heart rate effort. So we use heart rate for efforts that were like 20 to 30 minutes of work because and we just control it from heart rate. But in the track season, we would basically use pace as our metric because, of course, the limitation in, in you know, how fast you can run on the track is built on usually your 200 and 400 meter repeats, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So we use that as a marker of intensity. So the time and place to use those markers, heart rate's a good guide, but they need to be relatively accurate, which is not a, not a wrist strap. It's got to be a chest. But your RPE scale is good. So going in and asking, okay, what was your effort, those three runs? Yeah, I think you'll find what they call a threshold model of training, not too easy, not too hard. Hmm. It's common. Yeah. yeah. Now, um, we'll we'll finish off with these listener questions that we mentioned that we had shot. Like through. So we'll, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. We might throw these at you as like a, a rapid fire um, yeah, question yeah, sort of thing. Um, so I've got about six or seven good. questions here. So with that one, because that's a really important one that I've, 
Yeah. Okay. Um, so number one, suggestions of shoes to reduce calf injury or risk slash load. Uh, depends on the foot strike. So look, if someone's a heel striker, usually more pitch is better to offload an Achilles or a calf. But if someone's a forefoot striker, the rocker seems to be one of the attributes that offloads the calf unit. So it helps the sagittal plane motion. That's the that's the quick fire answer, basically. So rocker offloads a calf for a midfoot, forefoot guy, and heel pitch mm-hmm. probably offloads a, a rear foot guy. Yeah. Now for this one, I've heard the rumor is <clears throat> this changes every month, possibly every day. <laughs> what is, and I'm going to split into two. What's your favorite shoe at the moment? And then your yeah. all time greatest shoe you've ever put on your feet. Yeah. So currently I'm wearing the New Balance Super Comp trainer, which is this high stat carbon plated jogging shoe. And I look like that's like I talked about the methadone clinic of trying to play out. <laughs> that's that's probably there. And currently the uh the Nike Invincible. I race in the Alpha Flyer, just respond mm-hmm. to it really, really well. So yeah. Um, so that's my shoe. But historically, I, I love this shoe. It was a bit of a be all end all shoe for me back in oh, 2001, two, three, maybe, maybe a bit earlier was the Nike Zoom Elite 4. So back then mm. they used the Zoom Foam, Luneron type midsole and um, had a mild post, which didn't do anything, but they were lightweight. They had good responsive foam. But it's like when you go watch your old horror movie from 20 years ago and you go back and watch it and you loved it when you were younger and you're like, oh, this is rubbish now. If I put, <laughs> if I put this on now, I have no idea how That's it how it. I feel about the ASICS DS trainer. I used oh. to love that. And now I look at that and I'm like, oh. Look, look the ASICS DS, they're going now. So it's a bit sad, but I used to love the early versions. Yeah, uh, and they used the, the Spiva midsole before they went Solite um, and the flight foam. The flight foam became a bit heartless, but the, 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 salt, the Spiva midsole was really nice. So, mm-hmm. but look, once Again, I might put it on now and hate it. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, how do you educate runners around footwear? Look, it's uh, purpose-driven. So mm. a lot of the time I'll have people getting a, a mileage shoe for their longer running and a faster shoe now for their faster running. The beauty of faster running shoes, they're very different to what it was when I was running when I was younger. They're mm. high-stack compliant foams with carbon plates um, and not for juniors all the time, of course. Sometimes I try and get them into a hybrid only because I think that benefits, you know, it's a hard, the kids are tricky because you don't want them to not have the best tool because if all their peers beat them by 2%, you think, oh, have I just lost the race for them and they drop <laughs> out of the sport. Um, but you're always trying to develop their own stiffness properties as well without the mm. shoe. But yeah, so runners is education. But how I personally outside the clinic educate them. Look, I, I do long runs with groups now, people who work in retail in my running group who know more about running shoes than I do. I, I Julie, mm. Julian on our Inside Running podcast mm. knows more about running shoes than I do from his intuition and experience. So I still think in terms of education, we go to those retailers. I send them to those people who are in field doing it weekly or doing mm. it daily um, to give the best education. And I'm usually quite confident that I can do that without giving them as much education in the clinic now, which is sort of putting me out of business. So, mm. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think in probably the last year, and we our like local running shop is Pure Performance um, uh, yep. in Derby Street. And, and what I generally do is just write, you know, the characteristics that I would like from a shoe. And previously yeah. I would write the exact shoe. I'm like, these guys yeah. know so much Absolutely. more. Plus they're fitting them. And I'm like, you know, you, you guys are going to be so much better. This is what they might benefit from, but if there's something else, go for it. I mean, oh, that's, you're that's, in there with the store. That's the way to do it, isn't it? Give the characteristic and the outcome you're searching for and let them solve the puzzle from them. Yeah. 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 Um, how long does it take to lose running speed slash endurance? I think they'd be different. Yeah, to the second, yeah. if you can give us that answer. <laughs> well, I mean, there's always data on the VO2 max loss, right? Isn't there? Mm. So I've seen, you know, publishments of people losing VO2 max of two weeks detraining up to like five, 
but then performance doesn't drop, if that makes sense. So they'll go and do a 5K time trial and they'll be able to search it by their economy or maybe by their lactate clearance and stuff. They'll be able to manage it or deal with more discomfort or something like that. Mm. But um, yeah, so but so those markers or metrics of fitness, for example, can sometimes change relative to detraining, but it might not also relate to performance. But look, if mm. someone's a 5K runner, you're not just looking at VO2 max, are you? You're looking at their... Um, you know, uh, their lactate second, their second lactate turn is a bit of a marker of how fast they run as well. Um, so mm. their economy at those particular paces, that's so different built on experience as well. And yeah. you know, speed, speed's an interesting one. I, I, I think, you know, people that don't practice speed often tend to get, you know, the detraining effect. For example, you don't, don't just, you don't just run hundred Ks a week. And, and if you don't practice speed, you'll lose your speed because you're not practicing speed. But if you're doing hundred Ks a week and you're still throwing in your drills and strides and your speed work once a week, you probably keep your speed. So, mm. um, yeah, I mean, obviously time off with injury can obviously lead to detraining in terms of like speed and tissue conditioning, and then it takes time to build back up. That answers a real moving continuum, isn't it, relative mm. to, um, you know, your experience in running the type of injury and exposure. If someone's a high-grade sprinter and they strain their hamstring, they don't do it for four weeks, they come back, well, they may lose 6% or something like that, which might take them from, you know, 10-1 to 10-3 for 100. That's a big deal for them. Not a big deal for me. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, but yeah, so that's a real, that's, yeah, it's really relative to the individual. So, yeah. And then last question. And I've, it's very hard. Uh, this is probably the hardest question we've got. When does a runner need to see someone for an injury? And somehow answering in the sense of for runners that are listening to this and also for clinicians and podiatrists when you know you have rehab someone and you've got them back mm. you know to to where they want to be and you're not saying because you don't want to say any pain at all come back and see me but mm. you also don't want to say you know pain for six months then come and see me it's this sweet <laughs> spot but yeah how um how have you yeah, found it's, it's worth it's a good you? question like obviously even ben pedersen might be able to answer this better knowing that people sometimes don't even seek advice um you know for running related injury uh, some people don't seek advice for running around an injury because of the expense associated to it as well. And then I guess what happens is if an injury becomes really bad, the expense of that becomes really high. So, mm-hmm. um, so you're always trying to work out the best cost ratio for the patient, aren't you? And often if I'm getting people back by training characteristics, you know, I like doing things in periods of say four to 12 weeks of blocks of training for them. And often if they're, if they're nice enough, they'll let me collect some of their data and we'll go back and sit down after 12 and say, this is what the habits, what you developed, this is what you had historically. This looks really good and sustainable. It looks like you're managing it really, really well and they don't need you anymore. Um, but a lot of people don't know the answer to that question. And I think seeing the practitioner is really needing to know the answer to that question. And it's usually mm-hmm. built around how your training schedule is, um, whether it is, um, you know, if you have perception that something's wrong in terms of your characteristics of training or whether it's, mechanical perception of mechanics seems to be the most common thing that we'll see people here i'd say so posture of foot um mm. you know gait pattern for example would be reason why people would come and see you and they may not actually be a reason to see you so um <laughs> and often that patient you'll be reassuring them and saying this is actually not one of those risk factors you need to be too concerned about but hey we've looked at your training characteristics and you, you're hitting threshold four times a week this is something to consider this might not be sustainable forever um yeah, or someone who has a large history of Achilles injury or something like that, and they've added no, you know, no preparation or of, of removing their intensity, and they're doing it five times a week, and uh, or they haven't prepared, like a, their Achilles is still sore, and they're not quite sure why it's still sore, and you could just drop two intensity workouts per week and keep them running. Look, I think that I, I think the question is why people don't come to practitioners by the time they're injured is an interesting one. Um, mm. And it's whether they perceive the service to be um, needed or not. 
And mm. us, us, us as allied health practitioners, you only need to see the modern age world in 2022. People are trying to sell the education and services quite often on social media. And so people sort of almost feel like they can grab the answers bit by bit. But it's yes, really putting yeah. putting it, it's really putting it together as the puzzle that the practitioners should be able to truly hierarch make a hierarchical approach to treating that particular individual's um, ailments mm. um, and try and work out what might be the most important thing for that individual. So, so the often is if you don't know the answer, um, you probably seek someone who potentially does know the answer, and because um, usually you're answering an educational question that prevents injury or reduces the risk of injury, um, is what you're searching for. Once someone's injured. Look, I mean, whether it's behavioral, um, which means that person might not come back to see anyone or see anyone in the first place and make the same uh, characteristic, uh, they make the same issue, like the, the same error over and over again. It's hard to fix that person without trying to change the behavior. And uh, that's the completely different scenario. Hmm. Like coaching's easier because I get to deal with the people more often. I get to change behaviors more often with more, um, you know, more exposure to weekly uh, catch ups and running. And I think maybe that's where perhaps being a runner um, is quite a good thing as a practitioner in this dealing with running around injuries is because patients maybe have a bit more buy-in, whether they should have more mm. buy-in, whether you're a runner or not. You know, if someone mm. provides perfect evidence-informed information, they should listen to it. But human nature is not to do that. So I still have lots of people coming through the door because I'm a runner. And I could probably, you know, use that to my advantage and give people really poor advice and, and you know, <laughs> but... We don't because we we love running and uh, we mm. we know what it's like to be injured. Hopefully, um, <laughs> hopefully, uh, <laughs> and and uh, and and it's an important piece of the puzzle because we try to you know use our intuition, which is usually experience driven, mixed with the evidence informed um, practice guidelines, and we can make better decisions collectively. So mm. I, I usually yeah. think that's that's the best way to think about it. If someone doesn't quite know the answer, um, usually it's a very simple answer, and they can fill the puzzles in for you. And that's the, probably the cheapest way long term. So, yeah, incredible answer. Yeah, that's good. God, I'll tell you what, I don't know if two podiatrists have talked for this long and I haven't heard the word orthotics or custom orthotics yet. It's crazy. <laughs> No, we which haven't. is nice, isn't it? We've it is nice. Two brands, which is good. So, um, and then we've, yeah, no, it is good. It is good to chat about this sort of stuff and probably discussions like this are a bit tougher to have because, um, look, it's hard to sell load management. Mm. It's not mm. super sexy. Um um and that's that's tricky isn't it so and like i said at the start people sometimes don't want to know that the behaviors that they had and the characteristics they had might be the most common cause of their running related injury but if you can sort of solve that puzzle you're changing someone's long-term sustainability to to running which but also health span we talk about that as well that that you know people don't hit the activity guidelines often enough well look maybe putting value into stuff that's not that difficult mm. um is something we need to be able to sell to patients and um yeah, and sometimes that is hiking and and trying to parkrun. I totally ah. agree. That's what I said. I <laughs> yeah. was like, doctors yeah. should prescribe parkrun, not yeah, medication. Yeah. I reckon. Totally and look, out, out the physicians, granted, I work with here, they are big prescribers of exercise for most things that they do yeah, through well. here. And uh, and look, you only need to jump onto Twitter and see John Orchard sort of promote um, that, you know, the exercise physicians compared to other specialists don't get the rebates back from Medicare quite as much, which is, you know, completely confounded by people being, you know, by your cardiovascular fitness and, and physical activity being the number one association to all-cause mortality, right? right. So yeah. 
um, keeping people active is our role and it's not always by, um, you know, orthomechanical and movement patterning. It's, it's by motivation and d- designing people's weekly schedules and motivating them to put value into yeah. moderate, low and high intensity work strategically mm. put together well. Mm. Yeah. What a good note to finish on. Cardiovascular health and pronation. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great, mate. Someone's Thank you so it, mate. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for, for coming on. And if people want to hear your voice more, Inside Running, Shoe Geese, that's monthly, isn't it? That's right, yes, isn't it? it's monthly. Yep. yep. So we'll be up pretty soon as well, which will be good. So we're talking about a few of um, a few. And we're all, we're all back running again, which is good. So um, yeah. <laughs> between the, th- the three of us, we've had um, ups and downs. So. <laughs> Yep. Yeah. And then to people to find you, it's because I know Spark, there's two Sparks in the Instagram yeah. profiles. And then, yeah. So what, just follow both and, and go. Yeah. From there. Yeah. I mean, look at the, the, the main Spark page is linked to the Spark podiatry aspect of it as well. Um, yeah. But look, I'm on Twitter and things. I'm always easy to, to access yeah. and Instagram and our running groups called the Adelaide Miles crew, which I sometimes put some load management stuff up on that as well yeah, and share great. some of the data from the runners and their performances, et cetera. So um, I'm always around. So. Yep. Yeah, mate, we'll have to come down and hit those hills. Yeah, absolutely. Fun. <laughs> you can get a practice first. Newcastle's got hills, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah it's got this big Merriweather line, but it just sucks. Yeah. And yeah. I've just started to run a little bit quicker, so I only yeah, want to yeah. run on the flat. I never want to yeah, run yeah, yeah, again. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's <laughs> all right. So you, you measure your, your threshold heart rate or whatever it is, and then you try and run a hill at slower pace and sort of think of it as getting similar physiology, perhaps maybe. Might, yeah, I like that. you want to do it. Yeah, I do yeah. like that. All right, mate, thank cool. you so much for coming on. Our pleasure. Thanks, guys. Bye.